This is a diet of cabbage. Welcome to the uh, third uh, episode in the uh, diet of cabbage series. What we're doing here is trying to take a, a longer look, a bigger picture perspective uh, compared to the uh, extensive range of episodes that are on the Diet of Brussels website, which you can find at www.adartofbrussels.com. Now, in those uh, small episodes, we looked at individual questions, but here we're trying to think about uh, some of the bigger questions, the, the things, if you like, that might underpin everything. So we've already talked in the first two episodes about the EU, how that works, uh, and in the second one about the UK and the EU. What I want to do in this third episode is talk about the referendum more specifically. A bit about why we're having this vote, uh, what it all means, you know, how it kind of uh, works. In terms of uh, why we have this vote, there is, uh, if you like, the the nominal reason... Uh, and there is the uh, the more pragmatic uh, politics of the situation. Uh, the nominal reason is that uh, uh, David Cameron uh, is uh, keen to give people uh, a chance to vote on the uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU. Um, and uh, to that end, he sought uh, a renegotiation. Uh, with the uh, European Union, which uh, was concluded back in February, the European Council, uh, with something that's called a new settlement, which sets out a number of different changes to uh, what uh, happens. Now, uh, if you like, that's uh, the, the kind of the, the headline version of it. But it's also clear that uh, this is about uh, politics. David Cameron uh, has always been somewhat uh, critical of uh, the European Union and the UK's place in the situation, but it's never been something which I think has been central to his political ideology. He's much more concerned with different questions, particularly about the relationship of the state to society. And he has uh, plans and projects that he has pursued uh, under this government and under the last government. However, um, one of the things that uh, has happened in recent years is that uh, the uh, Conservative Party has become more sceptical uh, of uh, the European Union and less willing to uh, hold itself in uh, in terms of uh, doing these things. So as much as uh, Cameron was elected to be leader of the party back in 2006, uh, with his famous line the, about the need to stop banging on about Europe. The reason he finds himself now holding a referendum is that uh, over the previous parliament, he progressively found himself uh, uh, pushed by his backbenchers, particularly, uh, into making a whole series of concessions over European policy. Now, that starts off with fairly uh, prosaic and uh, seemingly technical questions, such as uh, moving Tory MEPs out of one political group in the European Parliament uh, to form another group, uh, through to uh, 
this uh, last concession, which came in 2003 uh, in David Cameron's Bloomberg speech, where he said he committed to holding a referendum uh, after renegotiation. Now, if I were a cynical person, I would argue that uh, one of the reasons David Cameron made that uh, concession back in 2003 was that he didn't think he would have to uh, follow through on it. At that point, it didn't look so likely that he would continue to be Prime Minister, and if he were Prime Minister, he'd probably be in a coalition. And you only need to cast your mind back a a year to remember quite what surprise there was in uh, May when the results came through and all the polling had been wrong and uh, all the talk of coalition politics uh, went out the window when the Tories were returned with a majority, albeit a small one. Now, um, certainly at the time that uh, Cameron made his uh, speech, I was of the opinion that this was... uh, Uh, a party management device, and uh, I'm not sure that I've particularly changed my mind on that. Now, uh, that's uh, the the more pessimistic, uh, more pragmatic interpretation of what's gone on. The consequence, however, is one which has a very real effect, and I think we have to recognise that this vote really does matter. For a long time, Uh, Eurosceptics in the UK found themselves like waves crashing against a big sea wall. That uh, for whatever argument they might make, that the the system just was too big, too heavy, it wasn't going to change. So, uh, you know, to use a slightly different maritime metaphor, it was like the the super tanker that can only be turned very slowly uh, and very gradually. The big uh, success, though, that uh, Eurosceptics had was that they found a way of overcoming the weight of that status quo, that they came up with uh, a line of argument that has proved essentially uh, impossible to refute, and that's the line about argument, uh, a line about uh, democracy, sorry, that uh, why would you deny the people a chance to pronounce their views? Now, uh, you can answer that in a number of ways. Um, You can observe that all of the uh, points of major change that have taken place, and actually most of the points of minor change that have taken place in the EU, have been uh, discussed and ratified and approved by Parliament, that there has already been one referendum about membership back in 1975, that uh, we don't have the same kind of demands made of the UK's participation in other international organisations, arguably of even greater consequence, uh, such as NATO. But frankly, that doesn't matter. Uh, Because uh, in political terms, the the line about democracy is one which has proved uh, irresistible. And so ever since uh, the mid-2000s, particularly around the time of the Constitutional Treaty, Uh, The line has been from sceptics that we need to give the people a chance to speak. Now, uh, whatever the reasons we find ourselves in this situation, it's important to recognise that this vote uh, is precisely an opportunity for the people to speak. Now, whether or not uh, the UK leaves, uh, this vote matters. Um, If we do leave, then 
that's going to be a very big change in public policy. It's going to put the UK in a very different place. And before you ask, I don't know what that place looks like. And it's clear that nobody knows for sure because this is a, a, a unprecedented uh, development that uh, countries come to join the EU, uh, countries don't leave the EU. Now, it's not to say that that's wrong, it's just to say that it's very hard to sketch out what that looks like, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. However, if we don't leave, if we stay, we remain, um, then that's also something which is deeply consequential. Um, that, uh, as we saw with the Scottish referendum, uh, staying doesn't necessarily mean that the system is static. Already, actually, if you think about it, we're not being offered a status quo option uh, in the referendum. We're being offered uh, the uh, implementation of uh, David Cameron's agreement from the European Council, uh, which will change the nature of British uh, membership. Admittedly, not very much, because it's something that's actually framed in a way that is much more uh, about uh, how all member states uh, relate to EU. But uh, given the nature of the EU, which we talked about in the first podcast uh, of this mini-series, given the uh, likely future development of the EU, there will be further discussions. So this referendum doesn't put things to bed by itself. It's not that we have made the choice uh, for this generation uh, and that uh, we can leave it to the next generation to sort out what's going on. It's merely that we continue to put ourselves in the middle of a, an ongoing debate. And we can talk a little bit about what that might mean uh, as we go along. Now, uh, from my perspective, uh, as someone who's worked on European integration, on Britain's relationship with it, on Euroscepticism, um, one of the clear challenges that I see uh, in this referendum is the question of uh, how do you make up your mind? And these podcasts have really been about trying to provide something that hopefully is of use to people uh, in doing that, to talk a little bit about the issues. Um, I'm not going to give you a recommendation one way or the other. Now, uh, let's think about this in a a broader sense, that uh, a, a real difficulty as we've seen in recent months, is that there isn't a clear set of cues from opinion leaders. That uh, everywhere you look, people seem to be split. You can find businessmen who are in favour, businessmen who are for, politicians who like it, politicians who hate it. You know, you take your celebrity figure of choice and they've probably expressed their opinion. If they haven't, they're going to express it at some point soon. You can make any number of arguments uh, any number of ways. You can make the same arguments work for you in support of remaining or leaving. Now, uh, I recognise this, and hopefully what I've I've tried to do here is kind of think a little bit about the issues and what you might do. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to uh, think about what you hear and uh, what you do with that information. The best advice I can give is uh, to try and uh, challenge what you hear, challenge what you see and you read. That uh, Think about the evidence that people give you. 
there is an awful lot of uh, bad information out there that people have uh, different kinds of agendas which may or may not have to do directly with the matter in hand. And, you know, I think that's fine. That uh, as long as we recognise that, then you can vote whichever way you like for whatever reason you like. You, you know, that's the beauty of the system. You don't have to justify your, your choice. However, I think it's, it's also useful to think a little bit about the consequences, the ramifications of different options, uh, to think about how that impacts on you. So what I want to do in the the remainder of this podcast is think a little bit about those dimensions, think a little bit about the possible paths that come from uh, the vote uh, as they go, uh, and, you know, again, just kind of help give you the tools to, to go and make your own decision. But, you know, I'd be always saying, don't trust any one source. Try and find other people who support it, uh, people who don't have the same kind of vested interests that any one party might have. So, where do we start? What do we think about? What, what might be relevant uh, as we go along? I'm going to suggest that there might be three ways that you might think about this uh, question about remaining or leaving. The first dimension is possibly the easiest but I think is also the narrowest, which is how does uh, this decision uh, or how does this vote affect me materially? Now, uh, material impacts are usually ones that uh, scientists uh, like to study because they, they tend to be a bit more fungible. You can, you can actually measure them, uh, which means you can draw pretty graphs and uh, write up uh, academic papers. Um, and so it is a bit with uh, the man or woman in the street. It might be that your work is related in some way to the European Union, uh, whether through uh, working in some kind of associated uh, institution or public body. It might be that your business uh, relies on European exports or imports uh, or access to uh, uh things that are structured by the European Union in terms of legislation or in terms of uh, other member states, things like that that might matter. You also might think about the way that the EU has an impact on your uh, social life, the uh, ability to move freely across uh, EU borders, uh, the impact of, uh, I don't know, things like mobile phone roaming charges uh, that might uh, change uh, if the UK wasn't part of the EU. All of these things uh, come together. The real difficulty is is that even in the case of a material aspect, it's often hard to pin down quite what is down to the EU uh, and isn't. If I take the case of uh, roaming charges with phones, which I just mentioned, Uh, That's something which doesn't actually require the UK to be part of uh, the EU, that uh, it's uh, governed by a a broader set of regulations. Um, So knowing what does and doesn't affect you is uh, is a bit tricky in that sense. But it already gives you a start uh, on trying to evaluate the decision. The second area is about how this all affects you in political terms. 
Now, I think this is one which is probably actually uh, likely to be more in the area of what people are thinking about. That if you think uh, about the politics of the situation in both the, the broad sense and the narrow sense, that this is clearly a, a deeply political decision. That uh, the way that the UK votes potentially sends out uh, a broader message about how the UK sees itself in the world, about how the UK sees itself as a country uh, and what it's trying to achieve. Now, uh, the difficulty, as you will observe, is that uh, uh, that already generates more than two options about staying or leaving. Staying or leaving is are not actually the uh, the most important things in that. It's what we do with staying and what we do with leaving the, to shape those politically. But as I'll talk through uh, uh, after this section, uh, that both sides, you know, have multiple paths that can be followed. So you might think a little bit about the the politics of the situation, and you know, in the, the more party political sense of that, you know, potentially uh, there are party political consequences that if one party or one part of one party or one politician is associated with uh, uh, winning or losing this vote, then that might well affect their chances come. Uh, the next general election, or even before that, in terms of uh, taking control of their party or the direction of uh, political debate. Now, uh, you can see that in positive terms, you can see that in negative terms, uh, and uh, how you uh, tackle that, I think, is, uh, well, I don't think, I know, it's entirely up to you. But it's worth thinking a little bit about, you know, who the winners and losers are from this referendum. And certainly you don't have to look too far to find uh, public figures who have got themselves involved in this referendum, probably more because of uh, how it might help them uh, uh, move up the uh, proverbial greasy pole of uh, national politics, rather than any intrinsic interest in uh, the question of EU membership. All of this, I think, kind of drifts then into the, the third area that you might think of. If you've thought about the kind of the material impact uh, and you've thought about the political impact, then I think I'd also encourage you to think about the emotional impact. And I've already touched on that to a certain extent. You know, where does this leave us in the, the broader sense? You know, what does this say about who we are as a country, as a community, uh, and and what we want. Now, uh, one of the things that's very clear from uh, the evidence is that very few Brits uh, consider themselves to be European. Um, so it's unlikely, if you're listening to this, that you do feel yourself European, although I might also say it's probably more likely than uh, the general population. Uh, since you're probably more likely to be interested in this question uh, than uh, most people. However, you know, there's a question about, you know, does your Europeanness depend on the UK being part of the EU? That, you know, uh, we can have lots of different identities and they don't necessarily have to be associated with uh, formal political institutions or memberships or, you know, a name on a list or things like that. So the emotional aspect, I think, is the, the most hard to pin down. 
but it's also potentially the one which is the most powerful for you that you know it's it's you know there's a degree of your gut feeling about you know well what do i think you know with my heart uh not that that's in your gut uh about this particular decision now always i'd be wanting you to be thinking about the balance between that that uh, your your rational uh brain might be saying something different from your your uh uh more instinctive heart but at the very least i think it's useful for you to think about uh, how those two marry up and again you know the fact that you're listening to something like this and that you know you're already 20 minutes in uh you know suggests that you uh do think about those kind of things Where do we go from this vote? I, I think this is really the, the, the big area because, uh, you know, what are the pathways that, that exist? You know, what, where can we go with this? The reason for asking this is that if we don't do this kind of prospecting, then we end up risking where we have a decision and then we have to go through everything uh, all over again because we never really talked about it at this point. I mean, if there ever was a point to talk about uh, Britain and the EU and the future path, then it's surely now, before we have a vote. And, you know, as uh, uh, various politicians have said, the worst thing would be that we have a decision uh, and that then, you know, the next morning uh, people wake up and say, oh, well, why are we doing that? Uh, I hadn't really thought about that. Let me then sketch out a a number of different paths that might emerge from the, the different options. Start with the simplest one, which is that uh, we have a vote to remain, and uh, you know that that then means that uh, how things were is how things uh, will be. To a considerable extent, you might say, well, actually, yeah, things will be largely the same if the UK stays in. You know, we get this new settlement that comes into force, but uh, if uh, that happens, then it means that uh, the only real change is that there are some limits on intra-EU uh, migration that can be imposed for a, a temporary period. Um, but uh, again, even that will take some time to, to work and uh, the impact is going to be relatively limited, I would imagine. The same point, at the same time, it's also important to recognise that the EU is in constant uh, flux that's always changing. And to take the most uh, obvious example, the Eurozone is going to require some uh, major reform in the next few years. And Germany uh, and France and other countries have all made clear that some kind of treaty reform is on the cards. Now, that's sort of hanging in abeyance until this referendum is uh, finished, but uh, it wouldn't be too much of a surprise if there were uh, a relatively uh, closed uh, treaty renegotiation that takes place in the next couple of years, uh, possibly once the German uh, elections have taken place uh, at the end of 2017. Now, that in of itself doesn't uh, change the EU fundamentally, and it's very hard to see how those changes would uh, be made uh, in a way that compromised the UK's position uh, if it were still uh, a member state. However, the 
the fundamental interconnectedness of the EU system is one which uh, also needs to be recognised, that um, Eurozone reform potentially does have an impact indirectly on the e- on the UK and its position, uh, depending to some extent on what it is that the reform involves. If it allows for deeper integration of uh, Eurozone institutions, then that might have an impact on uh, the ability of the UK to influence decisions uh, in that field of public policy. Uh, potentially there might be new policies which then have an impact on uh, the City of London and the financial services sector, which uh, also would have a, uh, a big effect. However, the, the main point I think here is that uh, a lot of what uh, remaining looks like depends on whether the government develops uh, a clearer plan for its European policy. And actually not just the government, but also the country as a whole. That the purpose of membership is something which I discussed uh, at much more length in the, the previous podcast of Data Cabbage. Um, but uh, which remains a problem, that uh, as long as the UK is not clear about what it's trying to achieve, it risks being buffeted around by uh, the uh, more temporal, uh, tactical uh, decisions and events that take place, rather than thinking about the bigger strategic picture. So if Remain is not so different from where we are now, then I think leave has uh, much more scope for ambiguity, as I already suggested. The key thing in this is very much on uh, what kind of deal is agreed uh, with the EU. Now, uh, this is discussed uh, within the treaties. There's a process for for member states that, that wish to leave, which basically requires... Uh, there to be a, a process of negotiation between the member state and the other member states in the EU itself. Uh, the, there are up to two years to do that. That can be extended if everyone agrees. Um, now, that Article 50 process, as it's known, uh, no one's actually tried to do it before, and uh, it's not entirely clear how it would work and whether the UK would have to make its notification immediately after the referendum or if it could try and do some pre-negotiation before it made its notification. All of these things are up in the air. And uh, to a certain extent, it might well depend on what turnout looks like, what the majority for a leave uh, looks like. However, given that we know that there is this process, given that we know that there are a range of different kind of models out there, I think we can make a number of... uh, summations about what possibly might happen. Broadly speaking, there are two types of deal that could be closed with the EU. In one, you end up with something that preserves a lot of the benefits of membership, particularly around free movement. So this is something that looks a lot like the Swiss, the Norwegian kind of model, uh, the European Economic Area kind of model, where basically you extend the EU out into a third country. Now, the difference here is that what we'll be doing is we'll be trimming back some of the current EU uh, competence in the UK uh, rather than building up uh, EU competence in uh, that third country. Now, uh, within that, 
if you end up with that kind of uh, Norwegian-Swiss kind of model, and uh, as uh, Leave campaigners rightly point out, it's not going to be a Norwegian or Swiss model, it's going to be a British model because it will be different. Uh, so it's, it's going to not match very uh, completely. If you have that, then uh, you probably also have the, the same kind of debate that you have in Switzerland and Norway. Now, in those countries, uh, you have access to the single market, um, but you don't necessarily have much influence. That You have a right to uh, participate in uh, discussions, but you don't have any uh, votes, you don't have any veto that you, you get what you're given. And you also have to pay um, considerable amounts of money uh, to the EU as part of your access rights. Now, um, I think what we've seen um, in the debate so far is that you can look at that both ways. As much as there are grumbles uh, in Norway and Switzerland about that state of affairs, for a lot of uh, citizens of those countries, because they don't like being members of the EU, they actually will put up with uh, uh, this kind of system because they don't actually see very often the kinds of uh, issues that uh, politicians talk about in those countries. So they kind of feel like it's an acceptable kind of balance. So I think we've got to be careful about not overstating uh, the downsides of those kinds of uh, models. However, one of the key consequences if you do have this kind of approach is that uh, because the EU and the UK will continue to have this uh, deep economic uh, integration, it makes it much harder for the UK to then go off and uh, organise its own uh, trade relations with uh, third parties. That uh, free trade agreements, uh, customs unions, uh, all those kinds of things largely look like they won't be possible because... Uh, or they will have to be very limited in scope because the UK is going to still be part of this uh, single area uh, with the EU. So whilst it might come with some benefits, it also potentially comes with some costs of pursuing the agendas uh, that uh, some leavers talk about. By contrast, uh, the second kind of model that could come out of this Article 50 process is something that doesn't involve uh, access to the internal market. So something that's much more arm's length and looks much more clearly like being on the outside um, and you know maybe you have a more limited kind of agreement but just really you know much more further away. Now clearly here the the trade-off is that uh, it gives you uh, a lot more freedom to act on the world stage that you can largely go off and uh, negotiate with whoever you like, uh, whatever you like, uh, on whatever terms. But that probably comes at a price of accessing European markets. Now, Leave campaigners have been keen to stress that uh, the UK has a declining share of its exports going to the European market, uh, and in that they are correct that that is uh, on the decline. However, it's still the largest single uh, part of uh, UK exports, which means that uh, there will be some kind of effect. So it's not uh, insignificant. Decline doesn't mean that it's uh, 
zero or close to zero it's you know, it's still over half or it's just under half now of uh, uk exports so uh, the balance is something which is quite tricky and any british renegotiation will have to think a bit about what there is uh, as the you know the priority of that post uh, membership uh, relationship the question here is then deeply about what uh, the vote means to leave. And I think we could characterise this in one of two ways. One of it is about opening up to the world, that this rhetoric about uh, the EU being uh, an outdated model or you know being too sclerotic in its growth, about holding us back, that's a line of argument, and it's one which is uh, a lot of adherence, that, you know, now we'd be, you know, freed from all of the faff of having to agree with our counterparts and compromise on our interests before we even start with third parties. You know, we, we could, you know, go out and we could make a lot more of uh, this relationship uh, with uh, new rising economies. But there's also a line of uh, remain arguments, uh, of leave arguments, that are more in the line of uh, sort of closing down to the world. That, you know, it's about, if you like, it's uh, saying, well, let's just, you know, we're not happy with this uh, depth of international engagement. And if we didn't really like it with our close neighbours, then we're actually also not that keen about it with uh, people on the other side of the planet. Now, that's less commonly heard than it used to be. But it's certainly something which is there. That, uh, you know, if you think about the more political aspects of those who remain, you know, that they talk about, you know, how we can recapture uh, some previous state of affairs or how we can make everything right uh, with uh, the, the monies that we save from EU membership. For me, I, I can't really take a, a position on any of those. But uh, I think the, the observation is that there is no clear uh, leave uh, plan of uh, attack of what should happen thereafter. There are lots of different views, and I think it's right and proper that there should be different views. The challenge then is that uh, not being a member of the EU doesn't by itself solve all of the problems of the world that we see. Uh, because all it will do is it will set up a, a new situation that requires uh, the British public, uh, British politicians, uh, British businesses to find a new settlement, a new way of working. For me, uh, the referendum is uh, a point for reflection. That The more we can talk about what... Uh, the UK hopes to achieve from its membership, more we can think about what um, uh, the impact of membership uh, is and might be, the ways in which we might uh, try and make the best of this situation or any other situation, the better informed the outcome of this referendum will be. For me, I I don't see uh, a best choice. There certainly is no perfect choice, and even a best choice is, I think, a, a somewhat difficult uh, thing to pursue. 
Instead, it's about different kinds of choices. And as I've already suggested um, earlier on, you know, if we're thinking about this materially, we might actually come to a different conclusion to if we think about this emotionally or politically. That uh, here we have uh, the reduction of a very large and multi-dimensional uh, question into a, a simple this or that kind of option. And the more that we can uh, be aware of the dimensions uh, of that uh, uh, question that's been asked on the 23rd of June, uh, the more likely it is that we can not only uh, make a decision, but that we can then pursue that uh, uh, decision through to some kind of uh, better position. One thing I think that I would want to say is that uh, neither remaining nor leaving is uh, a catastrophe. That you will hear, and you have heard, uh, a lot of people saying how this is going to be the best thing or the worst thing for this or for that, and how everything will go wrong or everything will go right if only we vote this way or that. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that, but uh, I think we need to acknowledge that actually uh, the structure of political life and social life in the UK and in the EU is more resilient than we often take credit for. And just to take a, a relatively local example, think about uh, Greece in recent years. This is a country that's seen massive economic challenges, and I mean massive, uh, with a huge downturn in economic activity, a complete change in uh, many aspects of political life, the way the state works, uh, intervention left, right and centre. Now, these are things that are many orders of magnitude bigger than... Uh, the impact of the decision uh, that we will see here in the UK, I would argue. That important though the EU is, it is not the only thing that matters in the UK. So uh, I think we need to think not just about the very worst case. I mean, you know, it might be that there is some financial impact, that there is some economic impact uh, if we go one way or the other. But uh, to say that this is the, the end of the world is probably not a helpful uh, position to take. So, once again, I think uh, for you, I think the most useful thing is to try and get as much information as you can from different kinds of places, different kinds of people, some of whom want to uh, convince you of what they're saying to be true, others of whom just want to kind of share ideas. I'd actually also say, go and read people who you don't agree with. You know, if you're thinking of voting leave, go and have a look and see what the Remain people say. Uh, and likewise, you know, have a look uh, at the arguments uh, on the other side. Because if you don't do that, you might well miss an aspect that's not there. Both sides have got particular subjects that they think work well with voters. And they tend not to talk so much about what uh, the other side want them to talk about. It's kind of a, a 
basic principle of uh, political campaigning is that you don't let the other people set the agenda. You try and set your own agenda. But for you as a voter, as somebody who's interested, it's useful to think about both sides of that debate. You probably have seen uh, a lot of things because there's a lot of stuff around, but it's worth just kind of working through those different kinds of aspects. So, I hope that this podcast uh, and its uh, sister episodes have been useful in giving you kind of the broader picture. If you'd like to find out more about more specific aspects, more specific questions, then you can find us at A Diet of Brussels, which is www.adietofbrussels.com. And there's lots there. And if you'd like to uh, ask us a question, then you just have to drop us a line and we're more than happy to record an episode specially for you. So uh, in the remaining weeks of this campaign, I hope that you read a lot, you talk to people, you discuss and you think about the choices that you're making.